Let us pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, into our world and for his willingness to take the risks that your love required. We pray for a fresh anointing upon us here at East Chestnut Street, your congregation, so that we might have courage ourselves to follow Jesus and to walk in his ways. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I just uh, finished a dystopian novel called When the English Fall. It's about an Amish family on a farm just north of here between Lidditz and Ephrata. And the book opens with a cataclysmic solar storm, the very same kind that wiped out many telegraph systems in the United States back in 1859. Well, this new one in the novel knocks out our whole country's electrical grid and fries the wiring on almost every vehicle in the country. And it soon becomes clear what the title, when the English, when the non-Amish fall, really means. (laughs) This novel is about the collapse of modern life as we know it. So I want you to think about this a little bit. No more banking. There went your retirement funds. No more cell phones, no more refrigeration, and no more food delivery. And here in Lancaster City, you know, I'm sitting in Lancaster City reading about what's happening in Lancaster City. I love that. People race to the giant, and it even mentions the giant. <laughs> the, uh, not the one that closed. They race to the giant to buy up the food that is quickly disappearing and already rotting. No refrigeration. But for Amish families, we need a solar storm. (laughs) But for the Amish families, This disaster has almost no impact on their lives initially. They have no electricity to lose, no vehicles to lose, and as winter approaches, they simply do what they've always done, which is to continue harvesting their crops and filling up their larders for the cold months ahead. Okay. But then hungry people from our city start emptying out of Lancaster City and showing up on their doorsteps for food. And fear and desperation and then violence steadily increase as refugees from the city, some of them armed, face off with farmers, some of them armed 
as well. This is America, after all. And in the novel, we see these frightening events unfold through the eyes of a very particular Amish father named Jacob. And we see him, and it's so beautiful. This story unfolds so slowly. You catch a beautiful sense of the different pace of Amish life. We see him prayerfully struggling with some incredibly difficult questions. Should he and his family risk sharing their food and, by the way, imperil their own family later on in the winter when they run out? Should they risk taking in some of their hungry English neighbors? What risks does the love of God actually require of us? You know, sometimes, if you're anything like me, you like to hope and to pretend that maybe by becoming a follower of Jesus, all of us will be ushered into a realm of safety and security, where all our troubles will go away. But this book got me to realizing that whether we are in a dystopian novel or in our own troubled world here today, Being a follower of Jesus is risky business. In this light, my attention was, my attention was riveted this last week when some of the commentaries that I was reading on the parable of the talents said that what Jesus is really, really talking about in this parable is the risk of discipleship. The risk of discipleship. That got my attention. Now, over the years, I confess that I have never really fully engaged this parable. Frankly, I felt put off by the way that it's often been used and abused for fundraising campaigns in the church, For stewardship sermons, you're not going to hear one this... Well, you are going to hear a stewardship sermon, but a different kind. And I've been offended by those who use it to preach the prosperity gospel. In fact, verse 29, if you take it out of context, to those who have, more will be given. From those who have nothing, more will be taken away. I mean, what does that sound like but the hyper-capitalism afflicting and destroying our world today? Amen? All right, now with that off my chest, let's try to give this parable, this wonderful parable of Jesus, a fresh look. So let's first begin uh, by naming something that all of us, myself, included have probably misunderstood over time. And that is the meaning of the talents given by the master to his three servants. Jesus, if you don't know this yet, and I didn't for a few years, is not talking here about our God-given gifts and abilities. You know, as in the TV show, America's Got Talent. He's not talking about being able to play the piano 
or to be able to build a house or to run a business. Instead, a talent in Jesus' time is simply a treasure. It's a lavish amount of money. In fact, it's 15 years of wages in Jesus' time for the common laborer. Let's also remember that in chapters 24 and 25, I went through the Bible there, Matthew, Matthew has gathered together a set of four of Jesus' parables that are meant to minister to an early church that is struggling mightily with the problem that they are expecting Jesus' soon and quick return and he's not coming. So they're struggling with this tension. And these four parables here of the faithful and unfaithful servant, the ten bridesmaids, the talents, the sheep and the goats are all meant to teach this community how to participate fully in the mission of God and of Jesus even as they wait for his fuller coming into the world. And so in this light, it becomes suddenly clear that the talents, dear friends, the treasure in this story today is nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ and his teachings through which God is saving and liberating and healing our world. And the big question for Matthew's church and for us here at East Chestnut Street is what are we going to do with this treasure of the gospel that has been entrusted into our care? Are we going to live it out? Are we going to invest it in the marketplace? Or are we going to bury it? It brings to mind Matthew 7, 26, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear my teachings, who don't just hear my teachings, but actually act on them. Actually live them out in your daily lives. And in Jesus' parable today, that's exactly what the first two servants do. They receive the treasure of the gospel to love and to forgive like Jesus, to resist evil with good, to feed the hungry, to defend the vulnerable. They receive these things and invest them in their lives. And a church living in this way together, dear friends, becomes, in the words of a friend of mine, a community of signs of the kingdom. Living and loving now, here, today, according to God's future. And in contrast, what does servant number three do? He chooses safety and security over risk. He plays it safe. 
and he buries the treasure that he's received, as we see so poignantly on our bulletin cover today. That bulletin cover, if you look at it, it's a hard picture to meditate upon, especially when we reflect on perhaps the ways that that picture is sometimes us. So all week, I've been pondering the proper place of risk in our journey of discipleship. If you saw me walking down Orange Street, that's probably what I was thinking about this week. What's the place, the proper place of risk? Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China in the 19th century, said that unless, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is never any need for faith. In the same way, there is a prayer in the back of our blue hymnal, number 696, that has always grabbed me and convicted me in a powerful way. In that prayer, number 696, we confess that we have not always been willing to take the risks that love requires. Have not been willing to take the risks that love requires. And by taking risks, by the way, we are not talking today about impulsively doing something or taking up bungee jumping. All right? In the church, in the church, in the church, what we're talking about is carefully and prayerfully discerning God's call upon our lives together and then boldly, boldly stepping out in faith even as we face danger and an uncertain outcome. And as the church, we support one another in taking these risks together. Crucial. And why are we able to take these risks? Because we trust and believe that God's vulnerable love is the supreme power of the universe. That's why we do this. God's vulnerable love is the supreme power of the universe. By raising Jesus, by raising Jesus, God has shown us that nothing, nothing, will ever be able to defeat or overcome God's love. Amen? So, okay, preacher, let's get real. (laughs) What are you talking about? What might some of these risks actually look like in our lives? Well, perhaps apologizing asking someone for forgiveness, and setting right an old wrong. Have any of those in your life? 
Maybe it's changing your major. Maybe it's moving to a new place or changing the direction of your vocation. Maybe it's building a friendship with someone of a very different race, party, or faith. Maybe it's sticking up for someone who's getting bullied in school or at work. Maybe it's finding help finally and accountability in your struggle, your struggle with an addiction. That takes courage and risk. Maybe it's reporting sexual harassment or abuse. Or maybe it's even getting arrested as we resist evil and protest some injustice. The beauty, dear friends, of taking these careful and prayerful kingdom risks together, especially for those of us who are used to being self-sufficient and in control, the beauty of this is that these risks draw us into a brand new realm where we need to learn to lean on God finally more fully and to lean on one another along the way as well. This is the place where we learn to trust that if God has led us to it, then God will surely sustain us through it. And where our witness is no longer how good and wonderful people we are, but rather because we have risked all with God how wonderful and good our God is. Now, maybe you're sitting there and saying, yeah, but, but that master we meet in this parable doesn't seem like a very wonderful or loving or good God. Any of you thinking that? Okay, I got one from Trace there. I mean, what about his throwing this worthless Since when is anybody worthless to God? This worthless slave into the outer darkness where there is gnashing of teeth and what else? And great weeping. Well, let me just mention a couple things. First, and we we say this again and again here at East Chestnut Street, let us remember that every passage in the Bible, every parable in the Bible must be brought into dialogue with all of the other parables and passages, particularly those from and about Jesus in Scripture. And so we want to hold this parable up with the prayer or the parable of the prodigal father and the parable of the good shepherd who goes out to get that last sheep. No single parable can ever fully or definitively describe God, nor can any sermon. 
Second, I want us to just notice, just notice in this story how profoundly our own images of God shape how we live and love. Did you notice that? Because the first two servants see God as generous and merciful, because they see God this way, they are able to take the risks that God's love requires. But in contrast, that last servant sees God as harsh and frightening and cruel, and so he's terrified himself and buries the treasure in response. He has fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the treasure that he's been given, which is that it is meant to be shared with others or it will vanish. As one commentary puts it, the master's seemingly harsh words should not be read as the punishment of an angry God, but as an expression of spiritual physics. I love that. As an expression of spiritual physics. Are you with me? God's mercy grows and multiplies in us to the extent that we share it and invest it with others. Or it vanishes. So also, by the way, does our awareness of God's presence in our lives. Notice that the final reward, oh, it's so precious, and I mention this at many Funerals. I mentioned this at Paul Hostler's funeral. In verse 21 and 23, the final reward is for these servants finally to enter into the joy, the joy of their master's presence. And this is what our dear friend Barry is preparing for these very days, to enter most fully into the joy of God. Well, I hope by now it's becoming clear that taking the risks that love requires is the high calling of every follower of Jesus. Now, for most of us, this probably won't mean laying down our life or getting arrested, but it just might. But for all of us, to paraphrase Mother Teresa, it will definitely mean taking many, many smaller risks with great love. This week, I had the joy of sitting down with Clayton and Dottie at their kitchen table, sipping coffee and munching on snickerdoodles. You ought to visit them. Dottie will pull them out. When I asked Clayton 
to share about his 24 years as a rural, I always have trouble saying that word, rural male carrier. He told me this little story about a risk that he had felt called to make in his own life to love someone who was greatly, greatly disliked by everybody else. A dozen years ago, you see, a, some new addresses were added to his 500-person route. That's amazing. And among these new addresses another carrier told him, was an especially unpleasant person. And the carrier, Clayton told me, didn't call this person an unpleasant person. (laughs) Right? So true to his warning, this lady turned out to be an especially rude and unfriendly person when Clayton began delivering the first letters to her. But the love of Christ urged him on. That surge within us, we feel. And by then, at the young age of 75, (laughs) still delivering mail at 75, Clayton had come to know something deep in his bones that sometimes the folks who are hardest to love are the folks who need it the most. Sometimes the folks who are hardest to love are the ones who need that love the most. And so he chose not to bury that insight, but to risk living it out. And instead of just reflecting her toxic anger back to her every time, Clayton chose to begin delivering her mail with great love. And he said something that I'll never forget. He said, Todd, it is possible to put letters in someone's mailbox in such a way that they know you really care. It's true, isn't it? You can throw them in there or you can put them in a nice, neat pile. And that's what he did. He also made a point, he said, in bad weather of putting her packages carefully between her screen and her front door. And then the, the one I love, one afternoon after finishing his route, he even went all the way back to the post office and broke a few post office regulations to search for her delayed baseball tickets so that she could go see the Phillies the next day. And because of Clayton, she saw that game. All of this happened during Clayton's final two years as a mail carrier. What a way to end. And by the time of his retirement, he said that these two both counted one another as friends. That's what you call a sign of the kingdom, of the healing mercy of God. 
So friends, may we all live in the same way as well. Carefully and prayerfully and boldly taking the risks that love requires. Amen.